Welcome to The Plunge, a cryo-EM podcast from Mimi, Mike, and Liz, sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. Hi, I'm Mimi Ho, and I'm an assistant professor at Columbia University. I'm Mike Cianfraco, an assistant professor at University of Michigan. I'm Liz Kellogg, and I'm an assistant professor at Cornell University. And this is The Plunge, the podcast that we all kind of came up with together that we're really excited to share with you. In cryo-EM, we have to take a sample and we plunge it into a really cold liquid. In that process, the sample transforms into a new state. And so for us, we felt like this podcast, like our new job as assistant professors, is plunging us into a new environment that we're really excited to be in. We're really excited about all of the interviewees we have on the podcast, and we hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we enjoyed making it. All right, welcome to The Plunge. I'm Mike Cienfraco with Liz Kellogg and Mimi Ho. We're super excited to have Ellen join us to talk yeah. about your work, everything science, cryo and machine learning. Really happy to be here. This is super exciting. So you're about to start, you just accepted a job at Princeton. Mm -hmm. and you're starting your lab really soon, right? In a yep. couple months? It's totally surreal. I technically started uh, a month ago but my lab is just just me right now, so. Yeah. Uh, I remember how that's that exciting. feels. Yep. <laughs> Very exciting times, thinking about all these different projects, thinking about all these things that I wanna work on, but at this point it's just me in my office, so it's great to be at conferences to like actually bounce ideas off of people and hopefully recruit. Last time I saw you was in Lake Tahoe and you were sort of between thinking about DeepMind or academic positions. Yeah. So do you wanna tell us sort of like how that went, because I remember being like, Ellen, please stay, don't leave. Yeah. <laughs> I actually remember having that conversation with yep. you too, yeah. yeah. Yep, and actually, I think we talked to the GRC and then there was the Lake Tahoe meeting, um, and part of staying in academia was like all these interactions with uh, the community and just the crime community being like really welcoming and really excited about all these things. Um, for me personally, I think one of the things that I was really thinking about is where will I do my best work and the research impact, um, not just in the short term, but in the long term. Um, I think industry, there's like so much excitement right now at DeepMind, at AlphaFold, and like the ability of machine learning uh, in structural biology. But I think long term, like the reason why machine learning algorithms are really successful is because we have these like gigantic data sets. And long term, like CrowEM is the source of data. So I think it's really, it's a lot more exciting to me to be, to be closer to uh, how the experimental data is generated. Having also made that decision myself about like whether to go in industry and have all that support or like to go off on your own and like try this adventure where you're just going to make it happen yourself. Mm -hmm. Like what was your thought process going through that yeah. decision and like what made you tip one way versus the other? Well, I think you actually said it. It's like <laughs> such an adventure, you know, and that's what ended up um, drawing me towards academia over industry. I think I, I mean, it took a long time. It was definitely one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make um, over the past years, deciding the directions and actually seeing you guys at the conferences over the last year. I think you were also kind of part of that decision, which is kind of hilarious. I remember talking to you about it at the Gordon yeah. Conference. Yeah. yeah, and the Gordon Conference, I think that's when I first even like started really uh, seriously thinking about academia, like talking to all these people, uh, um, sharing kind of, one of the discussions on like, where's the future of structural biology and dreaming big on like, what is my vision there? So that happened to me too. Like I was, mm -hmm. I was all set to go to industry and like it happened at a Gordon conference where someone talked me into like, 
yep. considering just staying in academia. So I feel like Gordon conferences are, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they deserve a lot of credit for the kind of environment that they set up for this kind of yep. thing. And definitely, I mean, I was in my last year of my PhD and at the beginning of that last year, I was just thinking about my PhD project, just like CryoDragon and kind of what are the next steps for their, this research and do I want to abandon it and to do other things, maybe at DeepMind or other companies. Um, and I wasn't really ever like, I never actually thought about academia. Like it didn't seem like a career path that was even open or open to me, you know? Um, so I have to give a lot of credit to my advisor, uh, Bonnie, um, who is in the CS department and math department at MIT. And she's been like so supportive and she was like, Ellen, you need to apply. Like, this is the year that the stars are aligned for you. Um, definitely like submit your applications. And she really pushed me to do it. Um, uh, and so I was like, okay, if she believes in me, like a lot of people in the community want me to stay, like maybe this is like possible that I should even like submit. Um, and I had a lot of fun writing the application. Like what is your research vision? Not just for you, but for like a much larger team of people. So I enjoyed that process. And then the actual interview process where you have to like talk to other professors and like kind of uh, think about how you fit into the department, what you would teach. That just made it so much more concrete and like I can actually visualize doing that. And so um, it was definitely a journey over the year, over the past year of like, okay, is this actually like feasible and like learning along the way, like how it works, like kind of fundraising and like uh, teaching. Yeah, I remember having this conversation and I remember thinking to myself, I think she's gonna stay now. Yeah. I think she's gonna stay. <laughs> really? It's really funny because I remember having this conversation with you and I felt like you were leaning the other way. Like when you came to interview at Columbia, I was like, I feel like we're going to lose her. <laughs> Which is totally valid. I mean, it would like I think either choice would have been really good, but it was really funny yeah. that we had completely No, but you made a great choice to go to Princeton. I anyway. flip-flopped a lot, for sure. Because a lot of, like, I mean, DeepMind is such an incredible company and AlphaFold is like so, like, and the people that I worked with there were absolutely fantastic and they were like such role models that I like, would love to work with them. And then what you mentioned about like, okay, they set up everything so you can really focus on research definitely appealed to me. Um, At the same time, it's like an AI company. And so if I think about the direction the field is moving, I think AI is gonna have a huge impact, but it's not gonna solve everything. Mm. Um, So thinking about the actual science, I was like, actually, I believe in my research vision uh, more than AI will dominate everything. So Pilar gave this talk yesterday about how she she's doing kind of all of this really cool free energy stuff. And she was saying that they just don't have the data sets, mm-hmm. like the kind of um, validated data sets that they need in order to be able to do that work. Is it the same for you? Like, what do you need from us, I guess? Yeah, I think the really exciting thing is in academia is that you can talk to, you can like talk to whoever you want. You can just, you have the power to just like reach out to uh, the structural biologist to really understand what their problems are and like what data they're generating and how to best like develop algorithms to analyze. Um, And so at this point, I think the power of CryoEM is that you can get these like huge complexes and with CryoDragon and these other methods that I've been interested in developing, you can start to understand dynamics and like ensembles. And right now there's just no data for that in the PDB. It's just like mostly single domain crystal structures. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's the really exciting thing moving forward is like, okay, can we leverage these like new abilities in CryoEM, develop new algorithms to really 
know how to reason over these large complexes to kind of bring things to the next level. Yeah, I remember we had a conversation about this earlier because I think about this a lot. I think it actually is the future of cryo-EM, mm -hmm. um, you know, modeling protein dynamics, because as you know, uh, you very well know, we don't crystallize. And so all the dynamics are preserved in the vitreous ice, right? Yes. So everything is accessible. That entire equilibrium um, of states is accessible to mm -hmm. you. But one thing I kind of struggle with um, in thinking about is how, um, when you get a model of how a protein is moving, mm -hmm. how do we know if it's real or not? You know what I mean? And yeah. so one thing I think about a lot as, an ex as a biologist and experimentalist, and when I think about validation data sets, um, I think that, you know, it's going to take a long time to build that kind of knowledge base up. It would be great mm -hmm. to have some sort of model system, but the one that comes to my mind, the best is the ribosome, right? I yeah. mean, because we know about how it moves. So um, I don't know if you have any other like thoughts about, you know, what other things we can do to validate mm -hmm. our models of dynamics, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, there are, there are things like FRET, right? Yeah. And they're great, but they're also one dimensional, right? So they're one dimensional measurements of distance. So yeah. Yeah, I think there's this like gap right now. We have molecular dynamics and these atomic models that can like tell you really, really detailed, I don't know, nanometer scale motions or atomic level motions, but they're just, you don't know how accurate they actually are. And then cryo-EM can get you these like large scale, low resolution dynamics of huge like megadalton complexes. And in the middle, it's unclear. Like, yeah. how do you bridge that gap? There's definitely really interesting experiments that you can think about for validation, like these other biophysical measurements and integrating that I think is an interesting exercise and will be good for like really checking how these things work. But longer term, the way that I think about it is that structure used to be the validation, like structural biology used to be the validation for like the biochemistry. But now moving forward, instead of being the validation, it's kind of like the hypothesis generation. So it's no longer this like confirmatory experiment. Now it's like this exploratory experiment that's gonna generate new hypotheses for how things work. And then maybe this is just my way of saying like, this is out of scope for the algorithms <laughs> and it's on you <laughs> as the experimentalist like to figure out. That was such process. a good answer, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Amazing. It's also funny because I feel like um, there's a lot of people that aren't structural biologists that think of us that way, that we're just here to validate their experiments. Mm -hmm. and, or their alpha form model. Right? Like they, they're like, oh, you know, that's so nice that you've got a structure that like confirms mm -hmm. our findings. But like, actually, that's that's never been true, I feel like. You know what I mean? Like the structure, yeah. I feel like structures always show stuff, like extra stuff that they don't see, Yeah. right? And there's a lot of times where they have a lot of like, you know, mutants and kind of biochemical yeah. data, cell, cell, you know, that kind of data that at the end of the day doesn't make sense unless you have the structure, Yeah. right? So like it's all of these disparate pieces that like you have to like map them back onto the structure yeah. in order for that to make sense. I mean, yeah. along those lines, what I wonder about is like for teaching essentially cell biologists, geneticists about structure and about that part. So I remember getting in fights, publishing a paper where we like got a structure yeah. of this protein complex on DNA. And our reviewer was like, yeah, we knew that from you know biochemical assays in the eighties. And it was like, yes, but-, but now you know it, now you <laughs> yeah. know it even more. And now you know why. <laughs> My chair was, was really surprised, I think, that like you can do like discovery using structure. And I was like, yeah, like it's not, we're not just confirming like 
genetic experiments or things like that anymore. Like we don't have to wait for that. Like yeah. the structures carry stories of their own. Like they show stuff of their own, especially if you like do things from like native systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of stuff there that like we don't have to wait for the. They can yeah. be predictive yeah. models in themselves. Exactly. I feel like that's always been the case, but I think that the rest of the world doesn't know that. I think, I mean, now is like the paradigm shift, right? Like yeah. 2020, 2022, I guess right now um, with AlphaFold, like now structure is like super uh, easy to come by. Um, and at the same time, and in parallel, CryoEM has gotten like so powerful. So I think both of those coming together. Now it's like, now we're in this era where structure is a first class citizen and like how we do biology. So it's like super exciting to see how things will change. So saying that makes me think of um, your interdisciplinary background and how you kind of came into the field of cryoEM because um, it wasn't so long ago that the three of us were at an image processing conference and we had met you for the first time. Mm -hmm. That was when you were early stage yep. graduate student, right? So um, before that you were with David Shaw, right? Mm -hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to CryoEM in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my original training, starting from undergrad, was in molecular dynamics. Um, I worked with Michael Schertz, who's now at University of Colorado Boulder, on protein folding simulations. Uh, so with like molecular dynamics and Monte Carlo algorithms. So I was always kind of interested in protein folding, protein dynamics, but had no like understanding of the actual biology or the reasons why, or let alone like, yeah, any cryo-EM. Um, and then at DHR Research, I was also doing kind of molecular dynamics algorithms for simulating these uh, interactions between proteins and small molecule drugs um, for drug discovery. When were you at David Shaw's? So this was between 2014 and 2017. Uh -huh. So in undergrad, I did research because I thought it was really cool. And then the default path would have been to do a PhD. And I think had I continued directly to do a PhD, I would have done something in chemical engineering or something like that. But then DU Shaw Research has this really great program that lets you do research even without a PhD. So I worked there for a couple of years. Um, it was also a fantastic experience because it was in New York City. And so yeah. it's like a really nice time when you're young right after college. That was a pretty good choice at the time because I remember in 2012, uh -huh. they, he was coming out with um, these very long timescale dynamics to yep. simulate protein folding. Yep. And before that, um, it wasn't possible to simulate, uh, to do molecular dynamic simulations long enough to actually see a protein fold. Yeah. I thought that was a really big, um, yeah step forward. Yeah. And actually I was also very interested in protein folding, protein structure prediction for a really long time. And so, um, but you know, in my PhD, so 2000, since 2006 or so, and it's really remarkable to see, like, essentially we've come to the point where we're like, so, we're saying the protein structure prediction is solved. Yeah. And in a way, you know, so exciting, but also I, sometimes I don't know what to think about it because, you know, it's like yeah. my whole PhD was spent in trying to predict these structures and yep. now it's like, what, you yeah. know, <laughs> now we don't need to do that kind of development yeah. anymore. It's basically solved. Yeah. So I think at Dushaw Research, we were uh, studying proteins via these physics-based simulations. So it was really, really fun kind of algorithmic challenge, really great experience because it was doing research, but without a PhD um, in this like fantastic environment with a bunch of superstar colleagues and so much compute resources. Um, but at the end of the day, it was kind of this limited view of this particular problem, like very narrow scope of understanding protein dynamics and interactions. And so after a few years, 
I was curious about like kind of the rest of biology research. I really didn't have any exposure to that. I was curious about other computational techniques. So I went back to get my PhD. And it was really great to have that like time to think about what I was interested in. And the short answer is I had no idea what I was interested in. So I started at MIT in this computational systems biology PhD program, which I think of as a program for people who have no idea what they want to do yet, because you get to work with anybody at MIT and you get to do rotations during your first year. So I was curious about experimental biology. I was curious about neuroscience. I did a rotation um, in genomics, uh, in kind of pipetting and quantitative mass spec. And then at the end of my first year, learned about the heterogeneity problem in cryo-EM. And so for me, once I learned about this problem, I was like, whoa, this is a way you can study dynamics, but from experimental data, which is kind of what bothered me about molecular dynamics is that you can run these simulations, but you have no idea how tied to reality you are because it's unclear like how accurate the models are. So in some ways, I was just very drawn to this problem of like, oh, you can study the dynamics of proteins, but from experimental data, and there's kind of no other good way experimentally to study uh, uh, to study kind of these ensembles. Right, yeah. Actually, I think that's a beautifully thoughtful backstory. And also, um, I totally agree with you that um, the experimental data needs to go along with uh, computational methods, right? Mm -hmm. The integration of the two is much more powerful than either alone. Mm -hmm. uh, were you going to say something? Mike, well, I want to jump in and ask. So like, no machine learning yet, I guess, at this point. No. So, okay. So you're still, you're in it. You, when you're doing a DE Shaw, it didn't come up the machine learning or maybe not, it was like a JSON. Yeah, not deep learning. Cause it was very, um, cause it was a little bit early days actually. Cause deep learning only really started taking off in 2013, which is technically overlaps, but I think it takes a while to just like, to get enough momentum to get exposed to it. So I was definitely, when I started my PhD, had really no understanding of biology, no exposure to deep, deep learning or machine learning. And so it's kind of surreal at this point to be like, ah, I'm an expert in both of these things. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. It's, it's also I'm, a young field. It's also a very field, young very field, young. Yeah. you know? Last night we were talking about, you know, the work that had been done previously. So I think in the, in, for us, we were kind of already a little bit in the field before you, mm -hmm. you entered. And so I remember being at Gordon Research Conferences where people were talking about this and being, and you know, there was a lot of talks that talked about doing something like this, like, mm -hmm. you know, manifold embedding and things like that. Right. Right. And it all seemed very abstract and kind mm -hmm. of like in the future, like very not complicated sure whenever, yeah. not sure when it will actually even like happen and definitely not sure when we would be able to use it as like yeah. users, like as people who are not, yeah. you know, developers. And so I feel like we weren't expecting it to happen. And then all of mm -hmm. a sudden you came in and like overnight, there was this thing that was not only like did it, mm -hmm. like solve that problem, but also made it so user friendly that like mm -hmm. all of us who don't know how to do that can yeah. all use it. Like Mike has this amazing resource that he has called Cosmic 2. Like he like all of these programs that are maybe a little bit more difficult to install or yeah. Just, you know, people are trying it out and not sure if they want to use it. So he hosts it on his, on this um, server yeah. and he, it's hooked up to a supercomputer. So like you can, people can just use it through there and test it to see if they like it. And so he has CryoDragon running mm -hmm. on yeah. Cosmic 2 and it's just awesome that it's so accessible. Yeah. So, yeah. And I do think actually that, you know, using machine learning to tackle heterogeneity was a big step forward. Yeah. 
Was there any doubt in your mind that the machine learning approach would work? <laughs> I remember this feeling when I was, when I first decided to work on this problem, this like nervous excitement of like, this is, is this crazy? Like, is this even possible? Like what will happen? Um, but I had a feeling, I just had an intuition that it would work. And I mean, like hindsight bias, like who knows what would have actually happened. Um, but one of the things I definitely really cared about was getting it to work in practice in like real applications and getting it into the hands of experimentalists and practitioners. So I, I think like the method first came out in 2019, like the first kind of preprint. And that's where we first met at this Flatiron Institute workshop. Um, but then there was so much kind of learning on my side to like figure out how to make it user-friendly, to really explore how it worked on experimental data and establish kind of good practices on analyzing and applying the method. And it's definitely one of kind of my most proud achievements that we have like wet lab biologists training deep learning models all around the world. Um, I think that's actually quite unique between CryoDragon and all of these other machine learning methods. Even AlphaFold, like it's, okay, AlphaFold is absolutely fantastic, but people are not able to train AlphaFold models. In this case, they're like training deep learning models on their experimental data to like really explore and really discover new things. That's a so, really great point, actually. Yeah. Since you, you know, you've mentioned that people are actually doing this on their own data sets, um, I, I kind of wanted to ask you like, how did you teach yourself machine learning? Because like we had, you know, like we discussed before, you know, um, you come from a simulations background, but not a computer science background. And so, and I, and I feel like, you know, I've actually personally tried to get into machine learning and I think it is challenging, right? Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for people who are trying to, you know, break into that space? I would say definitely don't get discouraged. Like I felt like a total imposter in the beginning, just like what is the lingo that people use and kind of what is the, yeah, what is the jargon that people use. Um, I think my number one piece of advice is to talk to people in the field, to like go to the conferences, meet people, understand kind of how they're thinking about the problem, um, understand the jargon and uh, really get exposed to what kind of people are working on. I think it is really hard because without like that level of kind of context, it's a little bit hard to read the papers because different fields all have like different kind of standards for how they communicate their work. And so, yeah, it definitely took a lot of talking to people who are actually in the field to understand like kind of what they care about. And then as an outsider, I think something that's really powerful is that you bring kind of a new perspective and you can do things that are um, kind of out of the box and creative for uh, even like these kind of traditional fields. So like CryoDragon, for example, was also like a very different approach uh, to training these like neural networks than a lot of the kind of traditional computer vision literature. So mm -hmm. it's shown to be, to have like very broad applicability across these other areas, which has been super exciting to see. Well, tell us about what's gonna happen next with the Ellen Zong lab at Princeton. What's yeah. like the big ideas? I feel like the thing when I was transitioning, it was it was kind of hard to go out from like your personal project as a postdoc or a grad student into like yeah. a vision where you have to actually have like a long-term, let's say 10-year vision sort of, and then that but then break it down. And so how what's yeah. next for you? What's coming? So that's something that I've been really exploring. And I mean, I should have like a 
I've convinced them to give me the job, so I told them something already. But this summer, I've been enjoying going to all these conferences to really figure out like what is my home community, which directions do I want to work on immediately. Um, and so I'm really interested in kind of developing machine learning algorithms for structural biology uh, in general. Um, so techniques like protein structure determination via cryo-EM, there's like lots of uh, continuations of cryodragon and like making reconstruction better, faster, kind of uh, more automated. I think there's a lot to do there. But I think one really exciting thing is integrating it with these structure prediction methods. Mm -hmm. So we have these powerful AlphaFold and RosettaFold structure prediction methods, but they only work for single proteins and only for a static structure. Um, and it's already such an incredible advance, but I mean, thinking about how we bring it to the next level. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually think that's a really interesting point that you're making here because the prior information we have is so powerful mm -hmm. regarding protein structure, and that's not mm -hmm. really being harnessed mm -hmm. very much yeah. at all in cryo-EM reconstructions. Right. Yeah. Right now, there's definitely like a firewall between like the cryo-EM image processing, where you're just using the pure image data to reconstruct your structure. Um, but now we have the capabilities to like predict. We have like, these machine learning methods that can reason over like three D structures and give like reasonable predictions. And so integrating that is something that I'm super interested in. I think that's very interesting. It's a very interesting direction. Yeah. yeah. And then longer, even longer term, um, I think cryo-ET and like in-situ structural biology Please. is the <laughs> really exciting- You gotta help me me out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I literally think, so when she came to interview at Columbia, I was like, please stay because I'm doing tomography now and it is, we need you for that. <laughs> Like single yeah. particle, fine, but like we need you for the tomography. Yeah. So I think that's like scientifically where there's so much to explore, there's so much to discover, and yeah. like that aspect of things, I'm like very just like motivated to kind of contribute towards. So, and at this, I mean, like immediately right now, I think maybe the algorithms for CrowET uh, processing will be pretty distinct from single particle, which might be pretty distinct from like structure prediction models. Mm -hmm. But kind of the long-term vision is that they'll all come together to like really make it possible to do reconstruction, visualize atomic structures from in-situ CrowET data. Definitely. So, Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> just like kind of building off of your comment of, um, you know, finding your home community. I think mm -hmm. that part of starting your own lab is also in building community, yes. right? Yeah. And I know that you have some efforts there in terms of like building your own home community. I've seen that you're organizing, what, what conference is it? Can, yeah. can you like tell yeah. us about it? Yeah, so the past few years, I've helped organize this workshop at NeurIPS. So NeurIPS is this kind of super kind of premier machine learning conference, and they have a bunch of workshops focused on specific areas. So I've helped organize this machine learning and structural biology workshop the past few years. And that's really felt like a home community for me. Um, just other people who work on ML algorithms around like 3D like structure problems. And the interesting thing is the first year we organized it, the first year we came together, we're like, you know what? A lot of comp bio is dominated by genomics, by like sequence data. Absolutely. There's relatively few people working on like structural biology problems, especially in machine learning. So we're like, let's like make our own workshop where we can all get together and talk about it. The week before our workshop, AlphaFold came out. <laughs> <laughs> and Did so you know about it? 
No, no one knew. So we were just like, oh my God, like what? And then suddenly there was so much interest in our workshop. And so it's just been like this really exciting uh, roller coaster ride since then. Yeah, that's that's really yeah. fun. Yeah. Did you have a lot of like last minute, like last minute registrations for your workshop? We had, and luckily it was kind of, it was virtual. So almost surely. Um, and we had like we had this like superstar lineup of speakers and then our last minute we're like we have to do a panel like we have to yeah, talk about it yeah. like see what people's reactions are and so like everybody like participated in this panel um and yeah it was it was very exciting and it's going to continue on is yep. this a continuing thing yep so the first year was like oh like machine learning might be useful for structural biology Last year, it was like, okay, AlphaFold's been out for six months. Like, how, ha how have things changed? This year, it'll be in person for the first time. So this will be in New Orleans uh, in December. Cool. And I think, like, the general theme is, okay, machine learning has established itself as something that's, like, actively being used for real applications in structural biology. Kind of, what are the remaining challenges? How will this go? How do we, like, continue to make sure that these methods are going to be actually useful? Yeah, that sounds really forward. fast. Like, really mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. Really exciting. I guess the question there, so the audience that's watching this and listening mm -hmm. to this podcast, should non-computer science people be attending, like, Myself. Good question. <laughs> or like, should yeah. people be coming? Or like, because NeurIPS is like a huge conference, yeah. but like, what's your advice to sort of everybody as far as should they be interested? Because it is the future, but maybe it's yeah. Who's your target? Not audience? relevant for us, yeah. and it should be yeah. You know. So target audience, it's a great question, and we've been lucky. I mean, one of the advantages of the virtual format the past few years is we've gotten a lot of people from the experimental community who have come to this conference, and. I would love for this workshop to be for both the ML kind of community who are interested in protein problems to like get into the space, but also for the experimentalists and the practitioners who can bring the domain expertise, who can like keep it real. So I would absolutely love to like span both like the computational side of things and the, the active like users of these tools. I wonder if you could do a thing where like, cause you said you had a panel. So if you could have a, you could do a thing where you have a panel of the ML people, mm -hmm. and then you could have us experimentalists ask them <laughs> questions, and then a you could just why don't you invite right? No, no, <laughs> not just us three, obviously. You can invite other people too. You're allowed to. We're gonna do. We're gonna do the plunge at New, New Orleans. <laughs> I feel like what you could do is so you could start out with a panel where you have like an ML panel, and then mm -hmm. you can have people like us asking them questions, and then you can switch it. Yeah. So that you have experimentalists who like were the ones collecting data and analyzing the data. We can also do a panel where all of the ML people can like ask mm -hmm. us questions. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. This is great. This is like we're in <laughs> the midst really of planning idea. like what the actual <laughs> right. like day of will look like. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think I mean it's really hard to span that gap because yes. because of the language barrier, not the actual language, but like the No, it's a language uh, barrier. Mm -hmm. It yeah. is a jargon <laughs> barrier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like we're siloed off right now. Like the people mm -hmm. with the domain knowledge from ML don't really talk to the people like that are I mean and I've tried to read the ML papers you know well, yeah. it's very jargon heavy yeah. yeah so I'm saying I feel like the where kind of the synergy and like kind of this mm -hmm. spanning that gap happens is when those people actually start talking mm -hmm. yeah right because we're yeah. trying to I'm trying to do this method development thing in my lab right now and a lot of it was really just like we don't speak the same language yeah and so then like explaining the problem so that both sides understand yeah is hard, right? And I think there's a lot to be learned from both sides because if you think of the machine learning algorithms as just a pure black box, you don't really understand like where it stops and like kind of where you can't trust the results anymore. And on the other side of things, like 
it's really always really inspiring to me to talk to the experimentalists to appreciate kind of the difficulty of the problems and like how like ML is not just going to come in and solve these problems. And so I think, yeah, yeah talking to both sides is like definitely, uh, definitely something that I value. And I think, yeah, creating these spaces to do that is something that yeah. I'm really excited about. I love the truly interdisciplinary vision that you have for the future, mm -hmm. Ellen. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it's really that, that's articulated very well and when you describe your workshop. Yeah. So I would personally love to come. <laughs> yeah. Really fun, you know? Yeah. And yeah, also yeah. I'm a big believer in interdisciplinary science. I think it's very hard to achieve, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to span, you know, mm -hmm. domain boundaries, but you've done it so, so beautifully. Thank you. I'm yeah. going to try to continue doing that. I will let you know in a few years <laughs> we'll how that works. Yeah, yeah, we'll <laughs> but it worked in, it worked out for my PhD. And so I'm like very kind of committed to trying to uh, do that for my lab as well. So thanks, Ellen, for coming. Yeah. It was awesome yeah. talking to you. It was awesome. You, hearing yeah. your vision. We're excited. Hopefully we'll see you in New Orleans maybe. And yeah. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thanks for listening to The Plunge, a cryo-EM podcast from Mimi, Mike, and Liz. Sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific.